Welcome back to the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast from Yale Neurology. My name is Safa Abdel-Hakim. I'm a neurology resident, uh, PGY3 at Yale Neurology. Today, we continue to have Dr. Jeffrey Duria, our neuromuscular specialist. Um, as we continue with this almost flip the classroom style podcast um, to, to do our best attempt to cover a topic that relies more on visual cues, today we're going to discuss mononeuropathies of the upper extremities. In the previous episodes, we talked about the upper limb um, anatomy of the, of the nerves. Today, we'll just target the mononeuropathies themselves and dive a bit deeper. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm good. It's funny, we call this a flipped classroom, but this is really, this is like a normal classroom, right? I just quizzed the heck out of you. Yeah, that's the, that's the right, that's yeah. the right classroom. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, I think just like last time, uh, this is a great chance to pull out your favorite uh, anatomy guide to the upper extremity. Um, again, we're going to base most of our stuff out of the uh, the aids to the examination of the peripheral nervous system, but uh, this hasn't changed in centuries, so uh, any guide will do. Which I've pulled up here so that I can cheat. <laughs> nice. Um, all right, so let's uh, let, let's get started. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just say also, uh, if you have not listened to the previous podcast about the brachial plexus, I'd recommend you pause this one and go back to that. Uh, we're going to be referencing some of that content uh, as if you all know it by heart. So it will make a lot more sense to understand where the nerves to the arm come from and how they get there uh, as we discuss some of these mononeuropathies. So, uh, Sava, this is maybe a philosophical question, but what do you think of when I say mononeuropathy? What comes to your mind? I think of an isolated nerve having problems. Yeah, that's pretty much the gist. And in order to understand mononeuropathies, you really, it's really just a study of anatomy. If you know your upper extremity anatomy, you can localize any mononeuropathy uh, with enough testing. Uh, and really, you always have the option for an EMG, but that's sort of an extension of your clinical exam uh, and is often better at differentiating subtle things than making diagnoses that, that you couldn't make at the bedside. So the goal today is to review common mononeuropathies as a, a lens to understand anatomy of the peripheral nerves of the upper extremity. You know, there are a couple of different ways we could go. Uh, let's probably, let's work proximal to distal. A, because that way, you know, if we do carpal tunnel first, everyone will just leave after we finish carpal tunnel. Uh, so we'll <laughs> save that for last. But also I think it just makes more sense given that we started in the brachial plexus. Absolutely. I previously discussed the motor nerves that arise from the cervical roots themselves. So even prior to the plexus. Do you remember what some of those were? Sure. We have the um, dorsal scapular uh, nerve to the rhomboids. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the nerve to the subclavius. Mm -hmm. And we have uh, the long thoracic nerve to the serratus anterior. Yeah, that's probably the most important of those three. Do you know what exam finding you get with a long thoracic injury? You get winging of the scapula. Yeah, winging of the scapula. It's sort of a classic finding uh, and a very high yield test question, even for our medical students out there taking uh, shelf exams. So yeah, the, uh, the wing scapula is sort of the classic finding for a serratus anterior injury. Uh, now, obviously, you can see that with uh, myopathies as well. So it's not entirely specific, but uh, it is uh, sort of pathognomonic when you're talking about individual nerve injuries. And we can see this after surgeries to the chest. Uh, oftentimes, we think of it arising after a mastectomy or a thoracotomy, but it's just one that I think you should be good at noticing. So we also discussed one other proximal nerve uh, that branches off the upper trunk of the brachial plexus, and that's the suprascapular nerve. Uh, do you remember what muscles that innervates? The supraspinatus and the infraspinatus muscles? Yeah, so both muscles that sit right around that scapular spine, and they call it the suprascapular because it has to go over the top uh, 
of the scapula to get to those muscles. Uh, do you remember what the function of those muscles is? Sure. So the supraspinatus muscle is the uh, shoulder abduction. Mm -hmm. Infraspinatus is the arm external rotation. Yeah, exactly. And it's that early shoulder abduction in particular, abduction, that, that the supraspinatus contributes to. And because of this nerve's sort of long and, and fraught course around the scapula, you can actually get it entrapped in a couple of places. Uh, the most common place is the suprascapular notch, which, as you can imagine, is right on the superior border of the scapula. And the nerve runs through that notch with a little band of connective tissue over the top of it. So it can get, it can get compressed through a number of mechanisms. And when that happens, you get everything downstream, which is the supraspinatus and infraspinatus affected. Once it innervates the supraspinatus, it travels through another notch, and that's through the, the scapular spine. That's called the spinoglenoid notch. Uh, and then it goes to the infraspinatus. And so if you get entrapment there, you only have an infraspinatus or an arm external rotation problem. So it's really, again, just knowing that anatomy and you can localize pretty easily. But by far the most common is entrapment at the suprascapular notch. We talk a lot about entrapments, but I think it's important to say up front that pretty much any nerve we're talking about today doesn't have to be entrapped. It can be affected by penetrating trauma, fractures. It can be iatrogenic from surgery. Uh, and you can also have inflammatory and even ischemic damage to these nerves uh, in the form of a mononeuritis or a mononeuropathy or a mononeuritis multiplex or something like that. So uh, it really is a, a wide differential for the etiology of injury to these nerves. We're more focused on the anatomy that they suggest. So we've kind of covered the, the main proximal nerves that come off the brachial plexus. There are a number of others that I think are lower yield and we're not going to cover, but let's focus on the major terminal branches of the brachial plexus. So uh, when we discussed brachial plexus anatomy, we talked about three different cords that led to these terminal branches. Do you remember what those were? Lateral, posterior, and medial. Yeah, the, named for their relationship around the axillary artery. So Correct. let's start with the lateral cord. What nerves are formed by the terminal branches of the lateral cord? So the musculocutaneous nerve, as well as the median nerves. Exactly. So the musculocutaneous is exclusive to the lateral cord. It's a C5-6 uh, nerve. Uh, I love the way that nerve is named because they're all musculocutaneous nerves, so it's extremely unhelpful. Uh, this one gets that name in particular for reasons unclear to me. Um, so refresh our listeners on the motor and sensory innervations of the musculocutaneous nerve. Absolutely. So very quickly, and to hammer the, the, the important points, the, the motor is the elbow flexors, except the brachioradialis, and the sensory would be the lateral forearm. Um, and I'm sorry, the elbow flexors that we're talking about are the biceps brachialis and coracobrachialis. Perfect. So in a patient with musculocutaneous neuropathy, you have problems isolated to these muscles. So somebody who has difficulty with elbow flexion or flexing their forearm upward and has a numb lateral forearm. One of the muscles that we discussed last week outside of those contributes to elbow flexion. So which muscle is that? Uh, that would be the uh, brachioradialis. Yeah, nice. So the brachioradialis is a radial innervated muscle, and it flexes the elbow predominantly when the arm is in sort of that mid-pronated position, so halfway between fully pronated and fully supinated. So you can still get some elbow flexion with the musculocutaneous neuropathy, but it's very weak. Uh, it's, I just want to note, and this is more of a curiosity, but in the majority of people, actually, the brachialis is also partially innervated by the radial nerve. So you'll find that our body builds in lots of little backup redundancies uh, that make exam studying extremely difficult. 
uh, <laughs> but functionally are, are quite useful when That's we have cool. these mononeuropathies. So uh, in terms of the clinical picture, a musculocutaneous neuropathy is actually pretty hard to get. It's, it's relatively rare. I think the most common cause is probably focal inflammation, which you could see with, you know, idiopathic brachial plexitis, sometimes called Parsonage-Turner syndrome. That can actually cause mononeuritis. It doesn't have to affect the whole plexus. Other things that could happen, traumatic injuries to the shoulder or the humerus, uh, certainly a penetrating wound, uh, either like a ballistic wound from a gunshot or a penetrating trauma. Uh, and then uh, every once in a while, you'll see reports of a compartment syndrome that comes from patients who vigorously work out their biceps. And as their biceps sort of swell in this post-exercise period or they hypertrophy, uh, they get these compartment syndromes or entrapments. Uh, I suppose one could get it chronically with just building massive guns too, but uh, it's not something I've ever seen uh, personally. Uh, so that was that was the musculocutaneous branch. You also mentioned the median. We're going to save that for later because it's not exclusive to one cord, uh, and really, it's distal entrapments are the most common thing. So let's let's move on from the lateral cord uh, to the posterior cord behind the axillary artery. What are the terminal branches of that cord? So terminal branches of the posterior cord are axillary nerve and radial nerve. Yeah, nice. Uh, what does an axillary neuropathy look like? So the axillary nerve innervates the deltoid and the teres minor. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be weak shoulder abduction. And what about the sensory component? That's the upper lateral cutaneous nerve of the arm. So that would be a lateral shoulder sensation. So it's a bit further up from the musculocutaneous sensory deficits. Yeah. And, and really, in, in reality, it often is a, is a small patch on the side of the shoulder about the size of like uh, the first thing that came to mind was a nicotine patch that you often see patients wear <laughs> but it it's not very large despite when you look in the books there the the supposed territory of this nerve is quite large and that's because of overlap from innervation from other nerves so again there's some backup built in uh, but you're right the prominent weakness you see with these axillary neuropathies and that patients notice is they have problems fully abducting or abducting their arm getting their arm up above their head and oftentimes they'll compensate by using their biceps or sort of swinging their arm up forward uh, as opposed to actually bringing it up directly from the side. So what kinds of things, mechanistically speaking, uh, do you think would cause an axillary neuropathy? So uh, definitely a penetrating trauma. And and given that it's very close to the shoulder, so a shoulder dislocation could cause it. Surgical Mm -hmm. neck of the humerus fracture. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the surgical neck of the humerus. So that's you know, it's a little further below the anatomic neck of the humerus, which is where the, the growth plate is, but it's the more common site of humerus fracture and the axillary nerve runs right by it. So oftentimes with an anterior shoulder dislocation or a surgical neck of the humerus fracture, we see these axillary neuropathies. The, uh, the penetrating traumas I was just chuckling about, uh, as I was jotting down some thoughts last night, I, I was thinking, how many times in a movie do you see somebody get shot in the shoulder and not have a brachial plexopathy. Like, does anyone ever really have a neurologic problem <laughs> from a penetrating? It never, right? But how, of, of course, they would be like, anyway, it drives me nuts. Uh, I'm one of those people who like calls out the inconsistencies in movies. So I was like tweeting Absolutely. about Absolutely. That. That's, that's why nobody likes to watch movies with me. Yeah, they just show the person in a sling and then like two months later, they're back to their normal uh-huh. activity. I'm like, oh, that's not how it goes. But anyway, we got really off track there. Yeah, so an axillary neuropathy, remember, Remember deltoid weakness predominantly uh, and a patch of numbness to the lateral arm. And remember that, of course, it's not just trauma. Uh, many other things can cause this, including inflammation, ischemia, et cetera. Absolutely. So what about the other branch of the posterior cord, the radial nerve? 
This has a lot longer course. It goes really from the, the cord all the way down into the hand. Uh, and so it, it's more vulnerable in a number of different places. Uh, let's refresh ourselves on the anatomy really quickly. So tell us about the anatomy, Safa, of the radial nerve. So uh, we need to remember what the radial nerve, uh, the function is. So um, its motor function is it generally is extensor of the elbow, wrist, fingers, as well as the brachioradialis, like you mentioned. So I, I think about it as all extensors, essentially, except for that one muscle. Um, as well as the sensory is the posterior and most lateral arm, uh, posterior forearm, back of the hand. Yeah, so it really handles a sensory stripe kind of all the way down the back of the arm uh, that could easily be confused with radicular pain in somebody with uh, sensory symptoms going on down that distribution. Uh, and yes, the, the general heuristic to remember is if it's extensor, it's radial. And the one major exception to that is the brachioradialis. We'll talk about another one in a second that's sort of a pseudo extensor of the arm, uh, if you will. But based on all of that, then uh, you would expect from a proximal nerve injury, uh, what kinds of uh, weakness? So you have uh, uh, all forearm hand extensors will be down uh, mm -hmm. and possibly have uh, triceps. Uh, depending on where the, the, the side of the injury is. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I like to think of radial injuries as sort of having these anatomic uh, like deal breakers or, or turning points where if one muscle is spared, then you know it's above a certain location. And the triceps is one of those. So there's a specific anatomic landmark uh, in the humerus that we often talk about with the radial nerve. Do you, do you know what that is? Would that be the, the spiral groove of the Spiral humor? groove, yes. <laughs> uh, groovy. So the spiral groove is not only is it a site where the nerve is very vulnerable, it's, it's running right along the course of the bone in this groove, uh, but it's also uh, right after where innervation to the triceps comes off. So uh, if the nerve is affected in the spiral groove, the triceps should be spared. If it's proximal to the spiral groove, the triceps should be involved. Things that are proximal to the spiral groove are the surgical neck of the humerus and the axilla, and obviously the, the plexus itself. So we often hear the term Saturday night palsy, uh, I like to avoid this term, uh, A, because it can happen any night of the week, uh, but B, because I think we tend to think of it as restricted to people who pass out while intoxicated. But in fact, it can happen to anybody who has prolonged pressure on the medial part of their arm. Uh, and the, the typical story is someone who fell asleep with their arm on something. But of course, that can happen in many different scenarios, particularly with people who are vulnerable to compressive nerve injury. And also we see it in other cases. So people who use crutches a lot and have pressure on uh, their axilla uh, will get a proximal radial neuropathy. Those tend to be a little more proximal, uh, but the classic palsy from radial compression happens at the spiral groove. I was going to ask you what other mechanisms could cause it, but the answer is the same for everything. Penetrating trauma, inflammation, ischemia, <laughs> you get the deal. Good consult when they're thinking it's a stroke, but it's not. Absolutely. I, can, I think at least once a month when I'm consult attending, I staff a case in the ED where it's somebody with uh, arm weakness, and it turns out to be purely extensor weakness. Uh, and then they have the classic sensory deficit, and then you get a good story, and you know what happened. But that's where I like to remember that they don't have to have been intoxicated the night before this came on. And I, I think everyone knows that, but we've we've built this association in our mind with the Saturday night palsy. So I'll get off my soapbox about that. So, so with that, with that mechanism of injury, you could get axillary and radial palsies together. You certainly could, especially if it's something uh, very far up in the axilla because they run very close to each other as they leave the lateral cord. So that's actually one thing I, I think you need to make sure you do when you see these cases of possible 
radial or axillary palsy is look at the other one. If you think it's radial, make sure it's not also axillary and vice versa, because then you'll be thinking possibly about a more proximal location. Just before the spiral groove and after the surgical neck, the radial nerve gives off the innervation to the triceps. And then just after the surgical neck, uh, between there and the forearm, it has three important branches. So two of those are motor, uh, and that's the branch to the brachioradialis and the branch to the extensor carpi radialis longhead or longus. And then it also gives off the posterior cutaneous nerve of the forearm. After those three, it goes on to form its terminal branches. So it's really important to remember those three, and in particular, uh, the brachioradialis is an easy muscle to test. We've talked multiple times about how we test that. So the terminal branches of the radial nerve are the posterior interosseous nerve, which is all motor, and the superficial cutaneous nerve, which is all sensory. Mm -hmm. So thinking about the muscles we've talked about so far as kind of your guide, what muscles are innervated by the posterior interosseous nerve? So essentially every, every extensor muscle that we haven't already talked about. Yeah, pretty much. So everything but the triceps, the brachioradialis, and some degree of wrist extension with the extensor carpi radialis longus. So that would include extensor carpi radialis brevis, uh, all of the finger and thumb extensors. And then also it includes one muscle that we haven't really talked about yet. Do you know, do you know what muscle I'm thinking of? Supinated arm. So the supinator. Yeah, the supinator. So the supinator is a radial innervated nerve too. And I, I like to think about it as sort of an extensor mm -hmm. because when we really think of extending our arm, we're sort of going palm up in the supine position. Uh, and so the supinator contributes to that and externally rotates uh, the forearm such that you're supine in anatomic position. But this is innervated via the posterior interosseous nerve. So weakness of supination is present in any radial nerve injury uh, proximal either involving you know the trunk of the posterior interosseous or proximally. So it's an important muscle to test in your uh, radial nerve function testing as well. And then lastly, the superficial cutaneous branch uh, is really most vulnerable in the forearm and particularly at the wrist. You can actually feel your own sort of anatomic snuff box, that little area right at the base of the thumb uh, as, the, as the wrist turns into the forearm. The, the radial nerve is right under the skin there and it's very accessible to compression. Uh, this used to be referred to as the handcuff or the ligature neuropathy. And it's anything tight around the wrist can certainly cause this, but also it's vulnerable to trauma there from uh, wrist fractures, forearm fractures, surgeries, etc. cetera. Uh, but this is felt purely in the radial innervation of the back of the hand, which as we discussed last time, uh, generally is a very small patch that sort of overlies the first dorsal interosseous muscle between the thumb and the index finger, but it can extend to a large swath of the dorsal aspect of the lateral hand. Okay, so we covered the radial and axillary, which are branches of the posterior cord, which then leaves us to discuss the lateral cord. So what are the terminal branches of the lateral? That would be the ulnar and part of the median nerves. Yeah, so the ulnar and the median. And as I said, we'll get to the median last. But when you think of ulnar, ulnar neuropathy, what, what comes to your mind? This is one we see all the time in clinic. People are concerned for ulnar neuropathy. Absolutely. Um, so we, we see um, clawed hand. So you're thinking of issues with hand, which fingers in particular? Because I, I, the claw hand always gets me. I, I can't remember if it's when they're trying to straighten or flex the fingers, but what muscles are being affected to cause that? So the flexor carpi ulnaris, mm -hmm. the flexor digitorum profundus, all hand intrinsics. Yeah. Um, and you, you get sensation to the medial hand. So that would be the um, half of the ring finger and the pinky finger. Yeah. So the ulnar is really 
predominantly a hand innervator. It does a few muscles in the forearm, as you said, the flexor carpi ulnaris and the flexor digitorum profundus to the ring and pinky fingers. So alternately called digits three and four or four and five, depending on the system you follow. But uh, it's, it's the same fingers that are sensory innervated uh, by the ulnar nerve. And then everything else is in the hand. It's all most of the hand's intrinsics, except for the median innervated muscles in the thenar eminence. And we'll talk about those in a few minutes. But there are really a couple of spots where the ulnar nerve is vulnerable uh, to entrapment. And the so-called cubital tunnel syndrome is probably the most common. That's where we think of as the, quote, funny bone. Uh, but it's actually the ulnar nerve that causes that funny bone feeling. And it's right in a groove around the medial olecranon. You can probably feel it with your own fingers. Uh, and when it's covered by fascia, which it always is, then it's called the cubital tunnel. Uh, but it's sometimes also called the ulnar groove. Uh, which refers to the bony structure. And so when the nerve gets entrapped there, either by someone who rests their elbows on things or does a lot of flexion extension of the arm, you get uh, problems in all of the ulnar nerve function, which you just described, the flexor carpi, ulnaris, the, the FTP four and five, all the hands intrinsics and then that sensory territory on both sides of the hand and the medial third, including the fingers. The medial cutaneous nerve of the forearm travels with the ulnar nerve. And so oftentimes you'll get issues uh, with sensation in the medial forearm as well when there's entrapment at that elbow because they're very close to each other there. Uh, the ulnar nerve is also vulnerable down at the wrist. So what, do you, what would you see if you got entrapment at the wrist? You would spare the muscles proximal to that, mm -hmm. so sparing of the forearm muscles. And you probably spared the dorsal ulnar cutaneous nerve as well. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that nerve. So the dorsal ulnar cutaneous branches off just before you get uh, to the ulnar head. So you can actually feel your ulnar head at the wrist. Right before that, the nerve branches off and it wraps around to the dorsum of the hand and gives you all of the ulnar territory on the dorsum of the hand. So if your ulnar nerve is proximal to that when it's injured, the dorsum of the hand will be affected. If it's distal to that, including in the wrist itself as the, the nerve passes into the hand, that territory will be spared. Uh, and so it, the ulnar nerve is kind of analogous to the carpal tunnel. There's an ulnar tunnel, sometimes called Guyon's canal, uh, in the wrist, and that's where the ulnar nerve travels, albeit without the flexor tendons of the fingers. So it's less uh, vulnerable to repetitive stress injury, but it can be compressed there and cause an ulnar neuropathy uh, into the hand. So if you entrap the nerve at the wrist, You'll get all the hand intrinsics, but which ones won't you get? So it's not all of them. There's a couple we'll spare. So you will spare the lumbricals one, two, um, the abductor pollicis brevis, the opponent's pollicis, the median innervated component of the flexor pollicis brevis. Excellent. So you just sort of did the loaf mnemonic that sometimes people use. So L-O-A-F, uh, lumbricals, opponent's pollicis, abductor pollicis brevis and then flexor pollicis brevis with a little asterisk because that's half and half median and ulnar. Uh, you can also actually get just a pure dorsal ulnar cutaneous neuropathy at the wrist. I diagnosed my brother-in-law with this not long ago. He uses a standing desk at work and he often sort of rests his hand on the edge of the desk uh, in like a semi-prone position and oh, puts wow. pressure right where that dorsal ulnar cutaneous nerve is. So he was getting a lot of paresthesias on sort of the back uh, medial part of the hand. Uh, mm -hmm. I got very excited. He thought it wasn't that cool, but um, <laughs> you can get these sort of pure, pure dorsal and cutaneous neuropathies. But again, I just want to emphasize, it's nice to know this anatomy and I think it's good as a review, but in clinical practice, the most common thing you're going to see 
is ulnar entrapment at the elbow. But that being said, most patients with carpal tunnel syndrome have a small component of ulnar entrapment at the wrist too, when you look at them electrographically, but oftentimes that's not clinically apparent. Uh, but if, if you hear your patient describe tingling in all the fingers, but mostly in the median fingers, it's probably because there's a little bit of ulnar neuropathy as well. So that brings us to the median nerve. Uh, the median nerve is a combined terminal branch of which cords? Uh, so that would be the lateral and medial cords. Yeah, good. And which nerve roots contribute to the median? All of them. That's right. So the median is a very big nerve, and it's contributed to uh, by multiple cords for that reason. So we'll get to the carpal tunnel, but let's talk about proximal median neuropathy. So just like the ulnar, the median nerve has no branches in the upper arm. It just it's it's traveling through, uh, but that means it's anything proximal to the elbow is going to look the same. It's going to look like a problem in all of the median innervated muscles. So what muscles are those, Safa? So these are the interior forearm muscles, except for uh, flexor carpe ulnaris and flexor digitorum profundus. Yep, to digits four and five. Uh, and then, of course, the thenar eminence muscles, which we just talked about. So that's the loaf mnemonic, mnemonic. lumbricals, APB, o opponent's pollicis, and half of FPB. Mm -hmm. What's the most proximal median innervated muscle? It's one we don't think of very often. So that would be the pronator teres. Yeah. So if... So supination is a radial function, pronation is a medial function. And both pronators, the pronator teres in the proximal arm and the pronator quadratus in the distal arm are innervated by the median nerve. So any very proximal median neuropathy should have profound weakness of pronation. Uh, if it's distal to the elbow, you know, down in the forearm, uh, then you'll at least have some sparing of pronation because the pronator teres is spared. That being said, when the nerve dives uh, so it actually sort of passes through the pronator teres uh, and then goes off to form its terminal branches. It is a little bit susceptible to compression. So you can sometimes get what's called a pronator syndrome where the pronator teres seems to be somewhat spared, but everything else is affected. That's a pretty rare syndrome in practice. You know, it's the kind of thing you would see in like a rock climber whose arm is often pronated and strongly flexed uh, or, you know, a professional arm wrestler or something like that. Um, but again, it's, it's very rare. So after it innervates the pronator teres, uh, it gives off uh, branches to the flexor carpi radialis. So notice that the wrist flexors are dual innervated. The ulnaris is innervated by the ulnar nerve. The radialis is innervated by the medial nerve. It gives off a uh, branch to the flexor digitorum sublimus, other places noted as the uh, superficialis, and then uh, the palmaris longus, which is a less functionally testable muscle in terms of bedside testing. And then it goes on to form its terminal branches. So one is the anterior interosseous nerve. Uh, you'll, you'll come across anterior interosseous syndrome at some point. Uh, and it's so-called because it travels along and, and pierces in some places the interosseous membrane uh, between the ulnar uh, and the radial bones, ulnar and radial bones. Uh, do you know what muscles are, inter are innervated by the anterior interosseous branch, Sophie? So that will be the pronator quadratus, flexor pollicis longus, and the flexor digitorum profundus. Um, yeah, so the FPL, flexor pollicis longus, the FDP, and remember that's just to the index and, and ring, uh, middle finger, because the other two are ulnar, and then the pronator quadratus, which is the other arm pronator down in the wrist. That's all the anterior interosseous nerve does. It doesn't have any sensory function, and you can kind of see a pattern here, right? The posterior interosseous nerve is the radial nerve's terminal branch that's motor only. The anterior interosseous nerve is the median terminal branch that's motor only. 
But unlike the radial, the median nerve goes on to do both sensory and motor function in the hand. So what is the sensory hand innervation of the median nerve? So that would be the, the, the rest of what we spoke about with mm -hmm. the ulnar nerve. So that would be the median, uh, sorry, the, the thumb, yep. the index finger, the middle finger, and half of the ring finger. Perfect. And it's really the, the palmar aspect of the hand predominantly. You know, the, the median and, and radial sort of overlap on the dorsal aspects of those fingers. Although I think most guides would show that the fingertips on the dorsal aspect are purely median innervated. Uh, and then there's, there's one little subtlety to that uh, that we often don't talk about, but it's important to know. So just before it goes into the wrist uh, through the carpal tunnel, the median nerve gives off a palmar cutaneous branch. And so in, in carpal tunnel syndrome, true carpal tunnel syndrome, where it's inside the tunnel, the problem is you should spare the palmar aspect of the hand, which is really just the skin over the thenar eminence. The digital branches will still be affected. Uh, whereas uh, if it's affecting that, it's either outside the carpal tunnel or it's a little bit more proximal in the forearm. Sometimes they're clinically indistinguishable, uh, but it's just good to note uh, for things like planning carpal tunnel release, for instance, uh, to treat your symptoms. And then, yes, we already talked many times about the motor innervation of the median, but uh, if you're going to remember one exception, that's probably the one, and that's our loaf muscles, lumbricals one and two, opponent's pollicis, abductor pollicis brevis, and half of the flexor pollicis brevis. So you can kind of see that the, the further the nerve goes into the hand, the more vulnerable it is actually at multiple sites throughout the arm. Uh, and everything that presents with median territory numbness is not carpal tunnel for that reason. So you really have to be thoughtful about your approach to what other muscles more proximal to the hand that you're testing in uh, median ulnar and radial neuropathies. And that includes the sensory territories that are affected because of some of these exceptions like the palmar cutaneous branch of the median or the dorsal ulnar cutaneous branch. Uh, I'd highly recommend uh, you know, reviewing some of these, these guidebooks periodically and just kind of burning these pictures into your mind. It will serve you well uh, for exams, uh, both prior to, during, and after residency uh, to know these like the back of your hand. But more importantly, it'll just make you a more confident neurologist because you're inevitably going to see the stroke versus peripheral neuropathy of the arm consult. And the more comfortable you are with arm anatomy, the easier it is to rule that out and therefore say that you have a concern for something central. I think it's much easier to prove a peripheral etiology than a central etiology in terms of exam at the bedside when it's an acute disorder. Absolutely. Um, and you, we can really get the pattern that all the back of our hand, the extensors are mainly radial and mm -hmm. you need to think a bit harder when it comes to flexors because you have an ulnar and a, and a median nerve territory. Mm -hmm. uh, we went over the mnemonic. We, wanna, we went over the muscle in details. You can always repeat the, the podcast and listen to it again. It would be helpful to remember also that uh, supination is a radial nerve and pronation is a median nerve. Uh, and those are things that you could elicit on examination very easily to help you with your diagnostic tools. Um, now that we're all experts at the upper limbs, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Anything else that you wanted to, to add, Jeff? So I, I just also want to add the sort of the most proximal innervated muscles of each of the forearm or each of the distal nerves, because I think that really helps you when you're trying to localize a lesion. So for the radial nerve, that's the brachioradialis is the most proximally innervated forearm muscle. Uh, so everything, if it's affecting the brachioradialis, it has to be above the forearm. And if it's affecting the triceps, it has to be above the spiral groove. For the ulnar nerve, the most proximal muscle is the flexor carpi ulnaris. So if 
wrist flexion is affected to some degree, then the ulnar nerve injury has to be proximal. And of course, everything else would have to fit with an ulnar injury. For the median nerve, the most proximally innervated muscle is the pronator teres. So if the pronation, if pronation is completely affected, it has to be proximal to the forearm in that case. And that I think is a good sort of dividing line that we don't often keep in our heads, but will help us when we're thinking, is this a plexopathy, an axillary problem, or more distal forearm problem? So yeah, know your, know your sensory territories, know your sort of deal breaker muscles, and know those general patterns with a few exceptions, and you can think your way through pretty much anything you come across. And remember, EMG is not a substitute for knowing these things. It's an extension of your clinical exam. Uh, and you get, into the e you get out of the EMG what you put into it beforehand. So really work these bedside skills uh, and rely on them because they won't fail you. I totally agree. Uh, and hopefully we, we all learned this message today and we can continue to practice it. Thank you so much, Jeff. Good to work with you. We'll do this again soon. Absolutely. Take care. Bye.